Let's uh, come before God now and ask His blessing on this service. Glorious God, we thank Thee for who Thou art, the beautiful God, in each of the persons of Thy Trinity, altogether lovely, altogether essential, altogether holy. We bow before Thee in Thy gracious attributes of sovereign mercy and loving kindness. We thank Thee for Thy simplicity, for all those attributes that are one in Thee, and especially for Thy beloved Son and the eternal Spirit. We thank Thee for His indwelling power. We thank Thee for the sufferings and the exaltation of our Redeemer. Lord, without Thee, the triune God, without Thee as our Heavenly Father, our lives would be empty and dull and lacking all joy. We thank Thee this evening for the joy of Thy salvation, for the freedom that belongs to Thy people in Christ Jesus. We thank Thee for what we're about to hear of that glorious future of everlasting unity with Christ, with the saints, with the angels, a perfect, holy unity forever, and above all, perfect marriage with the Son of God. O God, we thank Thee that there is a utopian marriage and that Jesus Christ is the center of it all. All our dependence is on Thee. Thou didst draw us to believe in Christ alone for salvation. And now we gratefully praise Thee for making Thy Son all in all to us. Thou art all our fullness. And we both lose ourselves and find ourselves completely in Thee. Lord, please forgive our sin. We grieve at the thought of grieving Thee by our sin. Our deepest desire is to live perfectly to Thee with heartfelt joy. Oh, how we wish we might be what we wish we might be. And how we thank Thee that one day we shall be just that. At the right hand of the Lamb of God, ever gazing on Him who is sitting in the midst of the throne, high and lifted up, and drawing the eyes of countless millions around the throne of the Lamb, toward Him like a magnet to behold His beauty and to inquire in His everlasting temple. Oh, for the day, may it come soon, Lord, when we would no longer have to cry out with Paul, evil is present with me. Heavenly Father, help us to live to Thy glory. Help us to see the seed of victory that lies above and beyond our lust of the flesh, our lust of the eye, our pride of life in Christ, who indwells us by His Spirit. Please help us to embrace and act upon that victory increasingly and bruise Satan under our feet shortly. Destroy sin fully. Help us to triumph over all doubt, spiritual depression, inner tribulation. Visit us, O God, with Thy salvation. Refresh us. Revive us. Renew us through Thy incarnate and resurrected Redeemer. 
Quicken us according to thy word. Renew our spiritual youth as the eagles. And restore unto us the joy of thy salvation. We ask again, Lord, that thou wouldst raise up Joel Weaver from his bed of sickness. And restore unto him full health and gladness in the Lord our God. Help us now in preaching this final sermon in this series on Union with Christ and unity in the church. In Jesus' name we pray with the pardoning of all our sins in His precious blood. Amen. We're going to turn tonight to Revelation chapter 19. And we're going to read verses 1 through 9 and preach to you on verses 6 through 8, Revelation 19, 1 through 9, and I'll preach to you on verses 6 through 8. Hear the Word of God. After these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Well, this is an amazing section of Holy Scripture, an amazing chapter, one of many in the book of Revelation about heaven, everlasting, glorious, blissful, sin-free Emmanuel's land. Have you ever noticed that the Bible does not speak about dying and going to heaven as much as it speaks about dying and going to be with Jesus? Why is that so, do you suppose? Well, because Christ is the sum and substance of heaven's glory. Samuel Rutherford said, Suppose that our Lord would manifest His art 
and make 10,000 heavens of good and glorious things and of new joys devised out of the deep of infinite wisdom, he could not make anything so superlative as Jesus Christ. Now there are several reasons why heaven is so focused on our glorious Savior. One reason, of course, is because you can't get to heaven without Jesus. There is no way to be saved apart from Him. Anyone who confesses that he belongs to Christ or she belongs to Christ must say, I stand upon His merit. I know no other stand, not e'en where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Then too, Christ is a centerpiece of heaven because faith in heaven will become also sight of Christ in heaven. Peter describes our, our present situation in 1 Peter 1.8. We love a Christ, he says, whom we have not seen, in whom though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. See, faith in the unseen Christ will be rewarded by the joy of looking upon Him and seeing Him as He is forever. Thine eyes shall behold the King in thy beauty. Number three, heaven is Christ-centered because in heaven every believer will be fully conformed to the image of Christ. 1 John 3, 2 says we shall be like Him. Imagine that. We shall be like Him. And He shall be the firstborn among many brethren, Romans 8 says. What bliss it will be. What bliss it will be to be without sin and to reflect Christ so completely that it will be impossible to be unlike Him. Impossible to be unchristlike. Impossible not to be perfectly holy in Emmanuel's land. And then two, number four, heaven is focused on Christ because His glory will always shine there. And His praises will never grow old there. Revelation 21, 23 says this, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb, how that, how that will be, we, we, we can't understand. But the Lamb will be the light thereof. But number five, finally, another all too often forgotten reason that heaven focuses on Christ is that in heaven the living church will be married to Jesus Christ. It will express the love of a bride toward her husband, toward him. Dear believer, your engagement to Jesus Christ in this life will be turned into perfect marital union and glory with him forever. Now this theme surfaces in many places in the Bible. Psalm 45, 10 through 15. Isaiah 54, verse 5, 62, 4 and 5. Matthew 9, 15 and 25, 1 through 13. John 3, 28, 29. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. 
Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, and often in the book of Revelation, but in a climaxing kind of way here in Revelation 19. And so I want to bring you God's Word tonight briefly from, from those three verses of Revelation 19 that we read that speak about the marriage of Christ and His church, this perfect unity, perfect union with Christ, producing perfect unity in heaven between Christ and the individual believer. That will be our focus tonight. But it's also Christ and the whole redeemed numberless multitude. And Christ and all the saints, not only, but also all the ten thousands times ten thousands of holy angels. Heaven is a place of perfect, united love, all flowing out of the believer's union with Christ. And so we have three points tonight, simple ones. The wedding, the bridegroom, the bride, the wedding, the bridegroom, the bride. Presently, the church is betrothed, espoused, and waiting for her wedding day. Now, in biblical times, the idea of betrothal or espousal was a bit different from our engagement. Today, when a young man engages a young woman, he gives her a ring. It's a symbol of the coming marriage so that she may look at that ring any time and say, he's pledged his love to me. In the Bible, that ring of engagement is the spiritually for God's people, is the Holy Spirit working in their soul. He's a down payment. He's, he's, he's an engagement ring, as it were, a guarantee that the wedding day is coming, the ultimate wedding day. But there's one major difference. In this life, in our culture, it is possible. It's, it's challenging. It's difficult. But it's possible to break an engagement. In Bible times, you couldn't break an espousal or a betrothal without divorcing. That's hard for us to understand. But there was a way, you see, in which in a betrothal or espousal, the couple was considered married even though that marriage had not been consummated with physical intimacy. That's why the angel could call Mary Joseph's wife, even though the official consummation of their marriage hasn't taken place yet. And so with a betrothal, which you, you, you might just think of it this way, a strong, irrevocable, irrevocable marriage, or engagement rather, sorry, a strong, irrevocable engagement. With that betrothal, the bridegroom would pay the bride's father, in Bible times, a dowry price, sometimes called the bride price. 
And according to Jewish tradition, the marriage agreement, which was drawn up at the official celebration of the betrothal, was then committed into the hands of the best man to implement. And then when the wedding day came, the official wedding day, both bride and groom would dress in fine clothing, Isaiah 61, verse 10. And the bridegroom would come to the bride's home to get her and her friends and take them to her new home where they would all feast and celebrate for days, sometimes as long as a week, as we read in Judges 14, 12 and Matthew 25. Now, the point of this is that in these passages I quoted for you, the implication is that all true Christians are betrothed, espoused to Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul is jealous of this espousal. In 2 Corinthians 11, 2-4, he says, I'm jealous over you <laughs> with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you or betrothed you, to one husband, that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit whom ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, you might well bear with him. So Paul is casting himself here in the role of a matchmaker, a marriage broker. In his love for Christ, he desires to present Christ with a chaste virgin bride. In his concern for the Corinthians, he resents anyone who wants to lead them astray into spiritual adultery, that is, the adultery of a false gospel. And so Paul's not just preaching here a set of abstract truths. He's not just presenting people with some philosophy. He's proclaiming the person, the glory, the beauty of Jesus Christ. I betroth you, he says, to Christ. You're engaged. You're you're espoused. You're committed to be his. As Samuel Stone says in his beautiful poem, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her. That's the dowry price. With his own blood, he bought her. And for her life, he died. And so through Christ's blood, we become as believers legally and inalienably his. And what Revelation 19 and many other places in the Bible is saying is that He is now coming again for His bride, His church, to lead us home to His Father's house, where He will present us spotless before His Father in heaven. And this will be a wedding procession with conjoined festivities that will not last a day or two or a week or two, but forever and ever throughout the vast expanses of all eternity. My friend, think about it. If you're a believer, you will be with Christ and behold His glory forever. You see, the story of salvation is really a love story. The covenant of grace is a marriage contract. Before the worlds were made, God the Father chose a bride for His Son. 
and drew up a marriage contract between them. And this wedding involves choice, not mutual attraction. God chose us in eternity and gave us to Christ who bought us at Calvary and took us as His own through the preaching of the gospel. And now He's coming back for us to claim us and to draw us into holy intimacy and to enjoy fellowship with Him forever. So the whole Trinity, the whole Trinity is involved in this marriage. The Father gives us His Son as our bridegroom, gives us as a bride to the Son, John 3. Christ purchases His bride with His blood and death, Ephesians 5.25. The Holy Spirit is given as an earnest or guarantee or down payment, engagement ring, I said, Ephesians 1.14. And so when Christ betroths us to, a, to Himself, you see, it means He will certainly bring us by His Spirit to arrive at the last day, the great day of judgment, for the actual wedding, where the judge becomes our bridegroom. You can scarcely imagine the glory of that wedding day, can you? Never has there been a more worthy bridegroom than Jesus Christ. Never has a man gone to greater lengths, humbled himself more, endured more, accomplished more in the great task of winning his bride than Jesus Christ. Never has a more wealthy father planned a greater feast, a bigger feast, than this wedding. This wedding has millions of guests. Every believer is belonging to this feast. Never has a more powerful pledge been given than the pledge of the Holy Spirit given to this bride. Never has a more glorious residence been prepared as a dwelling place once the bridegroom finally takes his bride. Great will be the rejoicing. Great will be the exaltation. Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come. The greatest wedding ever has come. The marriage of Jesus Christ and his bride. So let's look in our second thought at the bridegroom. The bridegroom. Now the term marriage of the Lamb is a bit strange at first sight because lambs don't get married. But Jesus Christ is presented here in his capacity as Savior. The Lamb of this marriage shows us his love by living for us and dying for us. And he first appears as lamb already in this book in chapter 5 where we read, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. The picture here is of a, of a sacrificial lamb. That's exactly who Jesus is. And so, when we think of the marriage of Christ and you, a believer, we must remember the kind of genre that the book of Revelation is. This is not a book where every little number, every little detail is to be taken literally. 
It's where so many people go wrong in interpreting the book of Revelation. This is apocryphal literature. This is a book of symbolism. This is a book in which there are pictures through metaphors. And so it's not that you're going to be physically, literally married to Jesus. Of course not. There's no giving in marriage in heaven, Jesus said. But it means something even more intimate, that your relationship to Christ will be ecstatically intimate. The forefathers, especially the medieval divines, spoke of beatific vision, a vision of immaculate, incomprehensible blessing. And so when you men, you men think of being married to the bridegroom, you, you, you must not think in the distorted sexual images of our age. This is not about the sexes, male or female. So this is not something that should give you the kind of heebie-jeebies, well, married to Christ. And women can identify, but I can't. No, no, no. Don't go down that road. This is a different genre. Just as you women, when you hear about being adopted sons of God, you know, the Bible never speaks about being adopted daughters of God. But you automatically assume you're included because this is not about a male adoption versus a female adoption. So you don't feel uncomfortable when you hear the expression sons of God. You, you put yourself in that because this is, this is for all believers. And so we've got to rise above that literal level here and think of, yes, heaven will be a literal place, and yes, there'll be a real relationship with Jesus that's literal, but this is something above and beyond. And marriage is simply used as, just as a term to begin to explain that this relationship will be one of tremendous intimacy and tremendous love. But there are also other ways to understand this that makes the metaphor of marriage to be so rich. You see, when we think of the ideal marriage, we think of two lovers gazing into each other's eyes, starry-eyed with love, perhaps. And, well, that's, that's our Western view. It's different in many other parts of the world. There, the parents of a bride often decide when she is to marry. In some cultures, she may have no say in the matter. She may not even know who her husband will be. She does not meet him until the day they are married. And she learns to love him as her husband. He learns to love her as his wife. Think of Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah said, I will go, when she'd never been on one date with Isaac. She just was, I will go, and I will love him. You see, in some ways, that's the kind of marriage we have with Christ. We love Christ, but we only love him because he loved us first. John says. He loved us while we were yet sinners, while we were utterly unattractive and undeserving. He loved us while our carnal minds were still at enmity against Him. Our hearts were against Him, yet He loved us. The biblical picture of this is the prophet Hosea. You know the powerful example of his love, don't you? God said to Hosea, go and take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, 
for the land hath committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. And that's what happened. Whether this is literally or figuratively, uh, that's a whole other debate of biblical hermeneutics about the book of Hosea. But you see, the point is this. As an adulteress, Gomer had a succession of affairs, and when her youth and attractiveness were spent, she ended up in the slave market to be sold. But Hosea found her in the slave market and bought her back, not to exact revenge on her for the rest of her life, but out of sheer love for her. Hosea 3, verse 2. He was a faithful husband to her, despite her unfaithfulness to him. Now the point is this. That's how God loves you, dear believer, in Jesus Christ. While we were yet sinners, God loved us. God redeemed us. While we were yet unclean sinners, unfaithful sinners, promiscuous sinners, He loved us. Having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them to the end. He loved them to the farthest limits of love. Oh, the outflowing love from the heart of God. Oh, the ever-flowing love from the heart of God. Oh, the overflowing love from the heart of God toward His unworthy bride, you and me. In this marriage, God took the best He could find, His only begotten Son, who's altogether lovely, and He matched Him with the worst He could find, a hell-worthy sinner, like you and like me. And he brings them together. Can you understand it? Why God would love you? Paul is just overwhelmed with it. He says, I can't measure the length, the breadth, the height, or the depth of the love of God. It far surpasses knowledge. Jesus Christ, you see, loves us beyond our wildest imagination. He loved us all the way to the cross of Calvary. And there He pays the dowry price to the Heavenly Father to free us from the penalty of sin and wipes away all our debts before God. You know, sometimes, even in this life, when there are two people, they get married. Sometimes the man may have a lot of money and the, and the young lady, for example, might, might be seriously in debt. But the day they're married, her debt is wiped away. Actually, there was a, a woman in Missouri who was married to a chiropractor. And um, he had saved more than a million dollars. And he had put that in an offshore bank account for his wife because he got terminal cancer. And he told her that this would get more interest for her. She could live off this money for the rest of her life. He wanted to take care of her after he was gone financially. He also told her to come to Grand Rapids, Michigan and sit under uh, my ministry there and, and uh, because I, we, I developed a relationship with him by the, over the phone, actually, 
talking about different theological things, and he had read some things I wrote and heard some sermons. And so this was all agreed. So when he died, I actually went down there and did his funeral, even though I never met him alive. And she came and actually became one of the secretaries for the seminary for a while. And after she arrived and she needed some money, she went to pull the money out of her account. And the whole thing was a scam. All one million plus dollars was gone. And then a young man, or I should say a man just a tad bit older than her, came down from Ontario. And he he had heard about her. He would heard about her godliness. And he, he wanted to begin a relationship with her, but she wasn't interested. And uh, she did agree to go out with him to, uh, to have a meal, to get to know him, but she made it clear, I'm not interested. Well, he tried and he tried. Finally, finally, he was ready to give up. But he thought, I'll try one more time. He said, he just had a few things he wanted to say to her. Would she just be willing to go out for one more meal? She said, yeah, just one more. That's it. So they went out to eat. And while they were eating, she happened to ask him about his children, his six children. She and her hus- first husband had never been able to have children. And he began, he thought, well, no relationship here any- anyway. I'm just going to open my heart. And he just began to talk about how he loved all his children. And she fell in love with him right there. And uh, she said to him, but, you know, I've got a problem. I've got no money. I'm in debt. He said, don't even worry about that million dollars. I'll take care of you from here on in. Just consider all your debts gone. I'll take care of you. See, that's what Jesus Christ does for us. When we're up to our necks in debt, when we have mountains of guilt before the living God, and we're utterly worthy, a thousand times worthy, of the everlasting abyss of condemnation, Jesus Christ comes and says, I'll be your bridegroom, and I'll pay every last penny that you owe I'm going to do it, not with money, or silver, or gold, as Peter says, but with my own precious blood. What a bridegroom. Do you want a bridegroom? A match who is honoring greatness. He is God and man, the brightness of his Father's glory, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Do you want a bridegroom who has riches and treasures? Christ's riches are the best, for they last forever. They're infinitely great, and they'll satisfy all your desires. Are you looking for a generous heart in a spouse? Jesus Christ is willing to lay out his riches for a spouse that her joy may be full. Do you want wisdom and knowledge in a spouse? Leadership? The infinite wisdom of God shines in him. He's wisdom itself. He knows perfectly how to glorify himself and do good to those who love him. Are you looking for beauty and handsomeness in him? He's altogether lovely. He's more than all the beauty of human beings and angels combined. 
Are you seeking someone who will truly love you? He is love itself. Love that is higher than the heavens and deeper than the sea. Do you want a husband who's honored and esteemed? He's adored by the saints and angels. Everyone whose opinion really matters treasures him. And God the Father delights in him. Do you seek a match who will never die and leave you a widow? Christ is the King immortal, eternal, the resurrection and the life. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the perfect bridegroom. Do you know Him? Have you received Him as your heavenly husband? Have you come to Him repenting of your sin, throwing yourself as that hell-worthy sinner on His mercy? Will you have Him even now, even tonight, Jesus, the Son of God, to be your Savior, to love and honor and obey from this day forth and forevermore? Will you have, will you have the Lamb of God to be your husband, the sin-bearer to be your bridegroom? Well, if you'll have Him, you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But if you won't have Him, you won't have Him at all. You see, dreadful will it be, dreadful will it be on the judgment day to fall into the hands of the living God, the holy bridegroom, the living Jesus, unprepared. Surrender to that bridegroom now if you've never done it before. You will never, ever be sorry. I think about this sometimes. I've had the privilege in my life with my wife to go to dozens of different countries, speak through interpreters in all kinds of languages, so many experiences we've had where I've met believers. I've heard thousands and thousands of conversions. I've had thousands and thousands of talks with believers about their Savior. And I've never met one in any country, in any language, in any place, who's sorry they've surrendered to Jesus Christ as their bridegroom. I've met a lot of people who said, oh, I wish I would have surrendered to the Lord when I was younger. I've met a lot of people who said, I'm afraid it's too late, but would to God I could do my life over. But no one ever sorry. I've never met anyone sorry that he or she became a Christian. What does this bridegroom mean to you? Is he your treasure? Is he your number one? Beyond all measure? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity? Is he your bridegroom? Is your heart espoused, betrothed to him? Thirdly, our text speaks about the bride, the bride. Verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now there's a lot of focus here on what the bride is wearing. Actually, what the bride wears is a pretty big deal on the wedding day. The bride is always asking, what, what shall I wear? I remember our, our oldest daughter when she 
got married. She said, Dad, I want to, I want to dress. I want a dress that pleases my husband. She began in earnest. In fact, she had, you know, this, these checklists. You got to have this done 100 days before, that 60 days before. She had it all done before those times because she couldn't wait for the marriage. She wanted to please and honor her fiancé. And so as the days went by, she's checking off all these things. And this is a picture, you see, of the bride of Christ. She's made herself ready, our text says, for the bridegroom long before the wedding. Paul speaks of that anticipation in 2 Timothy 4. He said he's the time he's ready to be offered to this eternal marriage is at hand. He said, I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there's laid up a crown of righteousness for me, and not for me only, but unto all them, that includes you, dear believer, that love His appearing. You see, a Christian longs for the appearing of his or her bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the signs of the weakness of the church in our day. You don't hear many sermons, do you, about the believers longing for Jesus to come on the clouds. We're so settled in to this life. We're so surrounded by things and stuff and possessions. We put our tent stakes so deeply in this earth's soil and forget that this is just the rental place and we're on our way to our everlasting home. You know what John Calvin said about this? He said, he who does not hanker for the second coming of Christ has made little progress in the Christian life. Charles Spurgeon said that when a believer gets up in the morning, he ought to go to the east side of his house and lift up the shades and look out and say, oh, he's not coming yet this morning. There should be a longing anticipation. The bridegroom is on his way. But there's not only a longing anticipation from the bride to the bridegroom, but also from the bridegroom to the bride. We read in Psalm 45, 11, speaking of the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, the king shall greatly desire thy beauty. You see, Jesus longs, longs for that day when he can say, here am I, Father, and all those whom thou hast given me. And heaven will be full. Not one chair will be empty. Jesus Christ, dear believer, will beautify you now with his own image and holiness because he's looking forward to embracing you one day as his bride. In fact, he's the king of heaven and you are the queen of heaven. Richard Sibbs, a Puritan, said, the king of heaven is on his way to make you to be his eternal queen. He who rules over the whole universe will make us queen of heaven. The angels will be our servants. The king will take us by the hand and lead us to paradise, his own personal garden, where we will live with him forever. What a, what a day. What a bride. And what a bridegroom. And what a wedding. In heaven, everything will be perfect. In fact, everything that is good on earth will be better in heaven. I once preached in Spurgeon's Church in London. 
And afterward, from the balcony, a man came down and said, you know, I preached on heaven actually on that occasion. He said, I agree with everything you said in your, what, in your, in your sermon, but there's one thing that bothers me. He said, I won't be married to my wife in heaven. I will, I will miss that terribly. I said, miss it? Sir, you won't. Because you will not be physically married to your wife in heaven, but your relationship with her will be better than it ever was before. Because you'll be standing side by side with her, and you'll be both focused entirely on the Lamb. You see, every relationship, Paul was going to miss Timothy, but in heaven Paul's relationship with Timothy would be better than ever, because they'll be focused on Jesus. Everything that's good here will be better there. And especially what will be better will be our immediate and continuous intimacy with Jesus Christ, enjoying Him, basking in His smile, ever gazing upon Him. Revelation 21 says, we shall gaze Think of that. Gaze upon his face. Never have to look away again. The Old Testament says no one shall see him and live. The New Testament says we'll gaze upon him and live forever. And there's no contradiction. This is everlasting life. Here we get, as Samuel Rutherford said, we get blinks and glances of him. Just short looks and, oh, well, we're back into this worldly responsibility. I had two Nigerian students who walked into my office one day at Puritan Reform Seminary. And uh, one was a third-year student. One had arrived the night before in the plane, going to begin his studies with us. So the third-year student is introducing the new student to me. And as he introduces him, the student's just going like this, looking at me and looking away, looking at me, looking away, looking at me, looking away. Have you ever had someone do that? It, it just feels really awkward. And the third-year student noticed it, and he goes, oh, no, no, he said to his friend. He said, you're in America now. In Nigeria, to look your teacher in the face is an insult. But in America, it's an insult not to look him in the face. And so then the young man tried to look me in the face. But it was so foreign to his culture. He, he managed a half a second or so. And then he just, couldn't, he just couldn't keep his eyes on me. Just couldn't do it. You ever feel that in your relationship with Christ? You just gaze at him a little while. But it's not even a gazing. It's just, it's just, a, just a little while. Maybe a word from the Bible warms your soul. But, but a minute later, you're, 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 you're thinking about something else. But you see, in heaven, we will gaze upon him. He'll never be out of earshot. He'll never be out of sight. He'll be the lamb sitting on the throne. Every eye will be upon him. We shall gaze upon his face. And as we do so, we'll be dressed in the white robe of His righteousness. A robe that symbols perfection. 
white, fine linen, our text says, which is the righteousness of the saints. Our youngest daughter worked in a, a bridal dress store for a few years, and uh, she found a niche there. She not only could sell wedding dresses very well, but she learned to be a seamstress there, and she learned to make wedding dresses, and still to today, she has her own private business, and she makes modest wedding dresses for women. And uh, one day, she's in the store, and a lady walks in, and she says, uh, my husband's dying of cancer, and I, I want to renew my vows with him before I die, but before he dies, but I can't, I can't fit into my old wedding dress. Is there any way I could have a free wedding dress? I can't afford one either. My daughter just felt terrible. She said, uh, I'm so sorry, but I, I'm, I don't own this store, and I, I can't help you there. The lady walked away sad. But my daughter thought something, and she ran after her, and she said, I'll tell you what, if you, if you go to a thrift store and you buy a wedding dress for $15 or $20 that fits you, you bring it to me, I'll put all the embellishments on it, all the sparkly things, whatever they're called, I, I'll put it all on, on, on there, and you can renew your vow in a beautiful wedding dress. That's exactly what happened. The lady bought a wedding dress for $20, came to my daughter, Every night for a while, my daughter was working on it and uh, made it just right, fit it to her. She renewed her vows, and that shortly after, her husband died. But you see, this dress of fine linen is not even $20. Christ has paid the whole price of it with his blood. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the white robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. The robe of righteousness that we wear on our glorious wedding day in heaven is the realization of our imputed blamelessness and holiness through Christ, Ephesians 5.27, for He has redeemed us from sin's guilt and purifies us to be zealous for Him. So this gown is the robe of Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to us. That's what we call justification. Christ takes off the filthy garments of our guilt and clothes us with the clean and beautiful white linen of His merit, His obedience being credited to us all through His blood. Revelation 7 makes that plain. You remember when the saints are walking in, someone asks the question, who are these that are going into glory? And the answer is, these are they who have come out of great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How did that happen? Well, by grace they trusted in Christ alone for justification from the guilt of all their sin. Literally, blood doesn't make things white. Spiritually, it does. We are made white through the blood of the Lamb. 
But then, notice the text says, To her was granted she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. But the Greek text literally says, The righteous deeds of the saints. Thus, getting ready for the day that Christ comes for you does involve effort on your part. We were talking about that last night in the Q&A, about sanctification in relation to justification. We're told here in verse 7, the wife has made herself ready. The man who says he belongs to Christ and yet never lifts a finger to purify himself, said J.C. Ryle, I quoted that last night, is deceived. The Christian life means getting ready. It means putting off the old way of living and putting on the new. Paul puts it this way, put off the old man, the anger, the wrath, the malice, the blasphemy, the filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing you have put off the old man with his deeds. And then in verse 12 of Colossians 3, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, the new man, the bowels of mercies, the kindness, the humbleness of mind, the meekness, the long-suffering. These are the righteous deeds of the saints. And the bride makes herself ready. And yet, that readiness is all of grace also. Notice here, the fine linen, the clean and white, the righteousness of saints, is given to the bride to wear. You see, you and I ought to be totally involved in the business of sanctification, yet at the same time, sanctification is all of grace. Hallelujah! For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, reigns over our justification. He reigns over our sanctification. He gives us grace to put off the old man and grace to put on the new man. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to herself, a glorious church, not even spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So ultimately it's his work in you, moving you to work, to do the work of God. And so it's all of grace, you see. It's grace alone, by Christ alone through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, that we are saved and that we'll stand in fine white linen on the great day. Hallelujah! For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife hath made herself ready. The story is told of a, of a young man named William Montague Dyke. He was stricken with blindness at the age of 10. The boy was very intelligent, went to university. In graduate school, he met the beautiful daughter of a British admiral. The courtship flamed into romance. Though he'd never seen this woman, he fell in love with the beauty of her soul. And they became engaged. And shortly before the wedding, at the insistence of the bride's father, William agreed to have eye surgery that might or might not restore his sight. The doctors operated on William and bandaged his eyes. He was then confined to bed with his eyes covered with bandages until the wedding. And William requested 
that at the wedding ceremony, his dad would serve as best man, and as his bride walked up the aisle, his dad would come forward and unwrap the bandages because if he could see, he wanted the first thing he could see to be his bride. And that's what happened. And as the bride walked down the aisle, it was a very aristocratic audience. Everybody was kind of tense. People knew what was going on. And no one in this aristocratic audience was to say a word. There was respect. There was reverence. And as the bandages were unwrapped, William could see. The first thing he saw was his bride. And he knew he wasn't supposed to say anything. But it just came out. My dear, you're far more beautiful than I ever imagined you would be. Can you imagine what it will be like? We can barely imagine it. To walk into the pearly gates of the heavenly Jerusalem where we'll never have to leave again and to see Jesus face to face. And we will cry out like the Queen of Sheba. The half of it was not told me. Of thy beauty and thy wisdom and thy glory. In that moment, we will enter into beatific vision. In that moment will be fulfilled the prayer of Jesus. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. Oh, to behold the glory of Christ with no sin in between, with no infirmity, with spiritual eyes made perfect, and dressed in fine white linen. Oh, to feast in His presence, to bathe in His smile, as it were, to enjoy knowing and communing with Him forever and ever. What a future, what a future awaits a child of God. And so as I close tonight, I ask you the question that Laban and Bethuel asked Rebecca, will you go with this man? Will you go with this bridegroom? God sends you an RSVP tonight. He invites you to the wedding to be the bride. Will you say with Rebecca, I will go. I will go. And by the grace of God, you will one day then say with David, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. The king there in his beauty, said Samuel Rutherford, without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. The Lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep sweet well of love, 
The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean of fullness, His mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Well, I close this sermon with just one more illustration. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we live, there, is, there aren't many touristy attractions. But there is the Gerald Ford Museum. Gerald Ford was a president, as you know, of the United States. A well-respected one in many ways. And Grand Rapidians are maybe a bit proud that Gerald Ford grew up in Grand Rapids and wanted to be buried in Grand Rapids. And the day that his body arrived and the hearse went from the airport to the Ford Museum, thousands of people were on both sides of the highway out of respect for Gerald Ford. My family was there too. On the other side of the highway, however, there was a little boy with a sign bigger than he was, and it said, Welcome home, President Ford. And I thought to myself, isn't that amazing? This boy can be so happy to welcome home a dead body. (laughs) But you see, on the great day, the great day, the highway into glory will be filled with spectators. Millions upon millions of the redeemed made perfect. And tens of thousands times tens of thousands of holy angels who never sinned. And as you come to the pearly gates of bliss and the gates go open and the bridegroom receives you, imagine what it will be to hear the millions cry out, Welcome home, sinner." saved by grace to sin no more. And you'll be welcomed home alive with your soul and your body reunited to serve and to praise God forever. To be in a utopian marriage with Jesus Christ forever. That's perfect union with Christ and perfect unity and glory between the triune God, the saints, and the angels. That's the apex of all of history, the apex of all of Christian experience, the apex of the Christian life. Union with Christ and unity in heaven forever where everyone will perfectly agree as Spurgeon said, the Pado-Baptists and the Baptists can't both be right. But God makes their hearts right here. He brings them to glory. And there one will be wrong and admit he's wrong, and they will all be right. There Calvin and Luther will agree on everything. You see, there'll be perfect harmony, perfect unity, perfect love. Jonathan Edwards has the most amazing sermon you could ever read. It's title, Heaven, a World of Perfect Love. That's your future, child of God. One with the Lamb forever and ever and ever, without sin, without dying anymore. Perfect life, perfect future, perfect glory, perfect 
husband. Amen. Gracious God, please bless, please bless this message. And help us to look forward to that day when we will be sin-free in Emmanuel's land. And if there are those here, Lord, who don't know Thee at all, please, please, help them to fall in love with Thee, even through this very sermon, and to cry out, I need the Lamb to be my Savior and my husband and my Lord forever. We pray for thy benediction upon this uh, dear group of people, these dear young adults, as they go forward from here tomorrow morning back to their places, back to their callings. May they return with Christ in their heart, longing to be with him forever. In Jesus' name, amen.